electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the surge of Omicron infections is battering American confidence. A group of former Biden advisors are now saying we have to do better. Criticizing the president, criticizing the administration, criticizing the CDC, saying it's not enough. They screwed it up. Former FDA chief Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the COVID agenda. We have to normalize the distribution of the drugs and the vaccines and the diagnostic tests. We need to get them out into normal retail channels where they're going to be more accessible to consumers. Right now, the government's been in control of that distribution. Well, at least pizza distribution remains safe. Well, sort of. Papa John's CEO on his own supply chain. Papa John's has been open every day since the the start of the pandemic, and we've figured out how to operate in a a new normal. Plus, Becky, Andrew, and Mike Santoli on the other stories that got us squawking today. The markets kick off 2022, and GameStop is going crypto. Why not? It's a $10 billion lottery ticket. It's Friday, January 7th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today, and guys, we finally made it. Uh, Friday is here, TGIF. This has been like the longest first week of the year that I can remember, and we've had some pretty long ones recently. But we made it. It's uh, John's The first week of 2022 and the first jobs report of the year. Don't get too excited, though. It wasn't a great number from the Labor Department. Only 199,000 jobs were added in the last month of 2021. That's far fewer than economists were expecting. That said, at least the unemployment number fell. We're now at a pandemic low, 3.9%. That's near the 50-year low that was February 2020, or as we like to say here on the podcast, the before times. The markets on the whole had a tough week. The Dow and the S&P are on track for their first negative week in the last three. But tech is really wasn't a tough spot. On Thursday, the Nasdaq had its seventh negative session out of the last eight. Now, some of this softness in the typically flashy tech sector is in part due to Wednesday's release of the minutes of the latest meeting of the Federal Reserve. The central bank is gearing up to taper its pandemic-era economic bull and investors are concerned that the new normal won't be great for the tech sector. For the first time in five years, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is outperforming the tech-heavy Nasdaq. Cloud stocks like Twilio, Salesforce, Zoom, DocuSign are pandemic favorites. They were the darlings of 2020 and, for the most part, 2021. But since the Fed signaled rate hikes on the horizon, they have fallen out of favor by a lot. In fact, while the Nasdaq, the S&P, and the Dow are all down, only less than 6% since November, cloud stocks are down almost 30%. It's those rate hikes. They're likely to affect high-growth tech names. 
one investor who bet and bet and bet again on all of those high-growth tech stocks, the legendary Kathy Wood. She's all about the high-tech names in the market, and famously, but a pullback for them could spell trouble for her portfolio. The tech selling taking a toll on Kathy Wood's flagship fund, ARK Innovation. It is at its low yesterday. The ETF was down more than 48% from its all-time high in February of 2021. The fund now down about 8.5% just to start the year. That prompted this tweet from Jim Cramer yesterday, quote, the performance of Kathy Wood's ARK is so atrocious that even though it's not a hedge fund and can't be shot against, it is a pall over every holding, tempting to discuss opportunities, but hard to find. It is such a tough streak. And um, Mike, she's uh, she's taken some big swings uh, at a lot of things. And um, she has conviction. And we will see where she she ultimately lands. There is no finish line in this game, unfortunately. So there are moments where yeah, it is if you're lucky. There's no uh, finish remarkable. Line. Yeah. And there are moments <laughs> where it looks remarkable uh, in a different way. Well, absolutely. I- You know, taking a lot of swings, big ones, but the same ones. I mean, it really is a very similar portfolio to what was racing higher a year ago. And so this is the momentum working to the downside. Uh, I've seen some a lot of math out there that the average dollar invested in ARK Innovation is now underwater, is now experienced losses because of when the money rushed into the fund at the very highs and the returns have been since then. That's what happens when you have kind of one of these marquee, you know, funds. It seems like it has the absolute pulse of the market at a given moment as uh, as hers did you know uh, you know let's say a year ago of course at some point stuff gets washed out and all the rest of it but you know a fully invested actively managed ETF it's tough to raise cash everyone knows what you're doing every day and uh, you know people are trying to take the other side of it we'll see if they're pressing too hard here though uh, against some of those stocks in the short term Meantime, we have some other news for you, which is that Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bonsell, saying the efficacy of COVID boosters will likely decline over time and people may need a fourth shot in the fall to increase their protection. Now, he made those comments at the Goldman Sachs Healthcare CEO conference. Bonsell said he expected new data in the coming weeks, but would be surprised if the booster efficacy didn't decline. I didn't think this was such a great surprise, Becky, given what we know about no, the way either. vaccines work. I thought, you know, these things will work for six months. And then you'll probably need to get another one. And as so long as we're living with COVID, uh, most of us hopefully will be taking them. Uh, If you read some of the headlines that are out this morning uh, by some op-ed writers and others who seem to take it, I don't know if they're twisting his words or seem to not be able to fathom what he just said, uh, that that unto itself is another thing that's sort of uh, remarkable to behold. I, I agree with you 100 percent. I mean, there have been all these kind of conspiracy theorists who said, see, it doesn't work. They're just trying to get you lined up to do this for forever. It's not any different than the flu shot. And by the way, it might be more effective if, if the virus would stop mutating, which it won't. It's not going to sit still. It's like a cockroach. It keeps running around. So you have to keep smacking it with something different. Um, I'm not surprised by this either. And by the way, if it works, if it's effective, if it keeps you from getting really sick, even if you do get COVID, um, Sign me up. Right? And by the way, it's not like you need another shot right now. They're talking about a year, for, a year from now if you're looking at next fall. So we'll see. Right. In the meantime, uh, six of President Biden's former board of health advisors during the campaign are publicly urging a shift in pandemic strategy. That group that was organized by Dr. Zeke Emanuel is calling on the president to focus on what they're calling the new normal of living with the virus indefinitely, not wiping it out. 
They're calling for more aggressive use of vaccine mandates and a digital vaccine verification system. They also want testing linked to treatments so those who test positive and who are at high risk for complications can get prescriptions on the spot for new antiviral medicines. And they want that strategy to focus on long-term goals, including developing new forms of the vaccine that make it easier to distribute, like nasal sprays or skin patches. And guys, this is where there's going to be some controversy that's kicked up again about vaccine mandates, the vaccine passports. That is not going to be something that it goes lightly, and I'd be surprised to see that kind of get picked up and taken. But there, there's some real common sense things that they're talking about in terms of making sure that people who are at high risk can quickly get access to antivirals. Because one of the things that we've seen through the pandemic to this point is if you are really wealthy or if you are really connected and really knowledgeable when it comes to medical things and, and on top of those things, you're going to get much better care than other people. Um, it's The doctors are pretty confused at this right. point about what they can do. I know people who are at high risk or who are immunosuppressed and don't have good advice coming to them about what they can do to protect themselves. These are things that right now there's a real limited um, supply of, and it's going to be the, the people who can either pay the most or who scream the loudest about it that are going to get access right. to it. And that leaves a lot of people out in the cold. That, that makes sense to kind of have a better way of looking at this nationally and making sure that people who are at high risk can get the early access to these things. To me, the fascinating, the fascinating part of what Zeke Emanuel and those, and the, and the, and those scientists were saying was actually political because most of them are have been advisors to this president, uh, are Democrats, and are now publicly, to some degree, in their own maybe polite way, criticizing the president, criticizing the administration, criticizing the CDC for their approach, saying it's not enough, saying that we're going to have to get more testing out there, by the way, to make the antivirals even work because you need to take them early enough and you need to know that right. you have it early enough to, for them to all, it all has to happen. It up. And so I, I wonder whether all of that is it shows a little bit more of a, a splintering even inside the party uh, about the approach to this, but then what that will also say about so many other issues, uh, economic ones and other things that we're going to probably be I don't know how you look at this and years. don't think that it was a massive screw up, but by, by the testing in particular, you can't even track this stuff or get decent testing. And again, if you were somebody who is really wealthy or has really direct access to healthcare workers or a hospital, you're in a different boat um, than most people who have been dealing with this can't even, they know they have symptoms and they can't get a test. Or can't, if they do get a test, they can't get it back in a, in a decent amount of time. The other way you can view it through the political lens, I guess, too, is resetting expectations, redefining what success is, getting away from this idea that there was <laughs> going to be a date in time when you declared independence from the, from the virus and it was sort of back to 2019 times. And instead of that, it's just sort of saying, no, we can kind of manage it, de-emphasize case counts uh, and just figure out the real world impact, I guess. We are watching shares of GameStop, the stock rising more than 22% overnight. That on a report that the retailer planning to create a marketplace for non-fungible tokens known, as you know, as NFTs. GameStop also planning to establish some crypto partnerships to create games and items for that marketplace. A source confirmed the report to CNBC. Stock's not 157.30. I mean, this is, and, and by the way, give Jim Cramer some credit. Uh, I think he wanted some on Twitter last night because uh, he had been talking about you know, maybe maybe the way if you're going to make the if you're going to grow into your valuation, guys, maybe the only way to do it in this day and age is to do it through crypto. The question, of course, is uh, whether GameStop has a, 
you know, some special sauce. You look at the open seas of the world, which sell non-fungible tokens. They have a valuation, I think, something like $13 billion right now in the private market. So there are very sky-high valuations being ascribed to NFT-oriented businesses. And, and maybe if uh, GameStop can be that, um, maybe this makes sense. But uh, on a cash basis, obviously... There's a little bit of a, a hope and a dream here. Sure. I mean, I don't think if there was anybody who was really trying to map out what the next act might be, what attempt GameStop might have, that it was not going to involve NFTs and virtual gaming and metaverse plays and things like that. So, you know, it fits into that, that storyline. Although the stock, you know, it's bouncing hard from, you know, 130-ish. It was 250 before Thanksgiving. It was 350 before the peak. It was 50 weeks ago that this thing kind of started to to really go go wild to the upside. So it's a $10 billion lottery ticket. The market's got a lot of those lying around. It's not really a huge number, as you say, Andrew, relative to some other things that are maybe plays on this area. But what's fascinating is as soon as this news hit after the market closed last night, AMC stock bounced. Right. It has nothing to do with anything. It just sort of inflames right. the exact same nerve of the well, traders who say, let's do it. Honestly, people think, OK, if GameStop can convince game companies to let them sell NFTs, why couldn't AMC convince movie companies? Oh, to let there was them not the remotest a- thought a- a- in that direction. It was basically the I, game look, is I back on. I don't on. understand any of this. Like, OK, it's game is back on. There's moves here. We're going to yeah. follow the storyline, run along with it. NFTs could be successful at GameStop if the game developers decide to go along with it. Sure. I, I have a hard time believing any of them would give exclusive rights to it because, you know, what, what, what GameStop is talking about is being basically like the Apple App Store. And most of the Apple App Store developers would, are, are very happy to get the audience. I don't know that GameStop has the audience to do something like that. Amazon can get you to come and let you sell your wares there and they can set the terms because they have a huge audience. It's questionable whether GameStop has that and whether this is a chicken before the egg sort of situation. So so we'll see what happens with it. Nigerian made some very good points in the last hour talking about this and the options activity around this, because on the Reddit boards, there were rumors that something big was going to happen, that there was going to be something that went with it. And there were a lot of people who were buying options, uh, call options to come in and, and be able at 10 cents, they were paying to be able to buy that stock at $150. So yeah. when it shot up to 160 bucks, they had that $10 profit immediately. Right. And a lot of people made a lot of money on that. So sure. that's why you see them following the trades. Yeah, and, and, following all, the and all the like way that. down, people were buying options to buy it at 300 and getting burned. And they lost so, out. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the way it's the way the games. But there were job listings and things like that uh, that you could track with GameStop said, oh, they're doing something in this area. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. But it is kind of like the gambling tables at the at the market these days. If you can kind of run along with some of these things, sometimes it pays off. Most of the time it doesn't. But these guys hit on this last night. So we'll see. Next on Squawk Pod, the virus and the variants. Dr. Scott Gottlieb takes us through it. If you look at the data, it does appear that New York has peaked. D.C., Puerto Rico, Maryland, Florida, Delaware all appear to be turning the corner on their epidemic curve. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand under by. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Let's talk about the topic we talk about every day, COVID. Six of the President Biden's former board of health advisors during the campaign now publicly urging a shift in its pandemic strategy. The group organized by Dr. Zeke Emanuel calling on the president to focus U.S. strategy on a what he calls, quote, new normal of living with the virus indefinitely, not wiping it out. And joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner, CBC contributor, also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina Scotta. I'm curious what your reaction was to the, the Zeke Emanuel uh, group, if you will, going public and effectively in a, in a polite way of sorts, but criticizing the administration for the way they've approached this. Well, look, I think it's premature. A lot of the substance of what they wrote was focused on the future and how we have to create a different posture to deal with coronavirus going forward because it's going to be a persistent threat. I think it's premature to conclude how this virus is going to continue to circulate. We may continue to see these waves and new variants emerge. More likely, this is going to recede into becoming a more endemic and seasonal risk. And we don't know what, how risky it's going to be, how prevalent it's going to be in the wintertime and what kind of uh, death and disease it's going to cause. So far, it's been pandemic. People don't have immunity to it. It's caused a big impact on society. But as we acquire more immunity and build this wall of immunity through vaccination and through, through infection, um, this could start to recede. I think the biggest risk that we face for the future right now is a normalized flu season. If we go into next year and have a normal flu season and then have some level of COVID on top of that, that could be too much for the current healthcare system to bear. And we need to think about how we're going to support a healthcare system during the peak respiratory pathogen uh, months. Because I remember many months when I was practicing medicine, when we had an unusually bad flu season, that was a significant strain on a hospital. And now you layer on top of that COVID and that can push them over the edge. So far, we've had abnormal flu seasons. We've had very low prevalence of flu. That's going to return to normal at some point. We're going to be due for a whopper of a flu season. We spend a lot of time talking about vaccines. Uh, Pfizer has, and you're on the board of Pfizer, has uh, probably the single therapeutic uh, that, that appears to have the most promise, but is really not at scale yet in terms of distribution. What is that going to look like this spring or more importantly, next fall, next winter? And then layer on top of that the testing issue, because it appears that for that drug to work very well, you need to catch it early. So you need to be able to test and get a, a, an answer, a negative or a positive pretty quickly. Well, look, I'll just say at, top, at the top, we have to normalize the distribution of the drugs and the vaccines and, and the diagnostic tests. We need to get them out into normal retail channels where they're going to be more accessible to consumers. Right now, the government's been in control of that distribution. And in certain respects, that's facilitated as, uh, access. But in other respects, it's probably impeded access. So hopefully as more supply comes into the market, as these things gain full approval by the FDA, you're going to have more of a normalized supply chain. You'll be able to push them out through retail channels that are more um, in neighborhoods. And you'll be able to push them out through doctor's offices as well. I don't think that this drug is the last word on antivirals that are going to drug this target. Um, we've now demonstrated that we can find 
orally available drugs that inhibit viral replication when it comes to this novel coronavirus. And you're going to see other innovation behind this, some by other companies, some by Pfizer. Um, but this is a highly effective drug, as you, as you mentioned at the outset. And there's going to be more supply coming online as we get into the later months of this year. The, the, Pfizer has said publicly they're going to produce 120 million doses. Um, more of that's going to be in the second half of the year than the first half of the year because of the long timeline that it takes to manufacture this drug. It's a six to eight month timeline to manufacture a single dose of the drug. But we're going to have much more supply coming into the market. So as you get into the fall of next year, hopefully prevalence will decline in the spring and the summer after we get through this very di difficult wave right now. And as you get into the fall of next year, you'll have enough supply for people who need it and it won't be rationed. But is, Scott, is this the kind of thing where I would buy, I mean, and this is the part of the issue, you know, some people pre-stock, if you will, Tamiflu uh, in, in, in their bathroom cupboard, uh, cupboard right? And they, they have it ready to, go, ready to cook, ready to go. Is, that, is this the kind of drug that, that a family might have a couple boxes of it, they test, and then, and then they take it, and then everybody would, I think, feel a lot better about everything, no? Yeah, look, um, Tamiflu isn't indicated for stockpiling in your medicine cabinet. Some doctors make a decision working with their patients to allow them to have a dose. No, you're, you're right that a lot of people do do that. But that's, what, that's the kind of discretion you have in a normalized supply chain. Right now, you can't do that because this is under government distribution. They're controlling very tightly what doctors can do. When you have a normalized supply chain, doctors do have discretion to make decisions like that. If they know, for example, they have a patient who's unusually vulnerable, they want them to have a dose accessible, they know they're at risk of contracting flu, and it's important to get that dose in early, you might make a decision like that as a physician, and some patients do do that. So... How critical, though, do you think, and is there another drug, another therapeutic that you think is either on, you know, on the make that's coming soon? Look, there's a lot in early development. The one that's in late stage development is a drug by Roche. But, you know, the, the Pfizer drug is a protease inhibitor. There are other companies trying to develop protease inhibitors. Pfizer's working on other molecules as well. I think you're going to see continued innovation in this space, much like you've seen continued innovation in the space for drugs targeting influenza. We've seen other drugs come on the market besides Tamiflu. So I think that this coronavirus isn't such a wily virus that we're not going to be able to figure out how to get better and better drugs onto the market that are easier to take, maybe one dose, maybe a shorter duration, um, you know, and maybe more efficacious. Although the Pfizer drug is highly efficacious, it's possible to uh, develop drugs that are even more efficacious. Stefan Bansell uh, of Moderna saying that a fourth dose will likely be required, that, uh, that the, third, the third booster uh, will diminish over time. Uh, that wasn't a surprise to me, but if you look at some of the headlines, it seems to be a surprise to others. My, my bigger question about that, though, is whether you think that the fourth dose, to the extent there will be a fourth dose, uh, will have to be uh, shifted to deal with either Omicron or some other variant in terms of how the thinking goes about that. Yeah, look, I think now that we're in the pandemic and we have persistent infection, you're going to see some people get a dose every six months who are immunocompromised, who are excessively vulnerable to this virus. For most people, this will probably become, for the foreseeable future, an annualized vaccination, which is what we've long thought. In terms of making a shift to another vaccine, I think this is something we need to take up with global uh, health authorities because 
If we do have to move towards a multivalent vaccine, this isn't a decision that the United States can make alone. These are global vaccines that are distributed to other countries. So you're going to need agreement across the world, much like we get agreement across the world around the flu vaccine, what antigens go in the flu vaccine each season. And I think the difficulty is going to be in a lot of developing markets, you're going to see an extreme reluctance to shift the vaccine because what they're going to argue, rightly so, is they haven't even vaccinated their population with the first vaccine. They haven't gotten baseline immunity into their population. If we shift to another vaccine, now, it's going to be an even increased impediment towards vaccine equity around the world. So I think you're going to see extreme reluctance by global health regulators to shift this vaccine. That's a discussion we ought to be having right now. That's what the World Health Organization ought to be doing, is having that discussion, because we might need to move towards a multivalent vaccine, or at least be prepared to do it. We have the technology to do it. That's not going to be the impediment. It's going to be global public health agreement. Um, hey, hey, Scott, just to follow up on that. I mean, how does that work? They like Pfizer couldn't be making the old one and the new one at the same time to to serve a developing nation that hasn't been fully vaccinated and a developed one that wants to buy ahead. And, and these seems like decisions that shouldn't just be talking about right now, but you have to decide this so that you can get the manufacturing capability up and and, a, and a ready for next year. When people say, "Oh, we don't want to talk about these shots." I mean, these governments like the United States are buying them now, and if they don't, we're going to have a problem like we have right now with the tests where you can't get a test. Production is not going to be the issue. Um, the companies are going to be in a position to produce a new vaccine. They'll also be in a position to produce the old vaccine and the new vaccine. But, you know, this pathogen is global in its reach, and you're not going to want to bias vaccination in one market towards one antigen and another market towards another antigen, particularly if you're biasing, you know, developing markets towards antigens that aren't circulating anymore, viral strains that aren't circulating anymore, because that can make them excessively vulnerable to uh, to new mutations. And so you're going to need some kind of, of agreement around the world about how we put immunity into the global population. With flu, it's a very structured process. A global health authorities meet twice a year to make decisions about what antigens go in that vaccine. Um, but this is a pathogen that circulates, as we've seen, very quickly around the world. You don't have different strains in different markets. Can I just say the flu shot almost never works? Like, I get it every year, but <laughs> how often does it actually match up with, with the most important thing? So when you talk about it from that perspective, it doesn't give me a whole lot of faith. Yeah, so, some years the flu shot's quite protective, up to 70%. Some years it's not. This seems to be a year where the, um, the strain of H3N2 that's circulating, the prevalent strain, doesn't seem to be a good match for the vaccine. And some years it's been as low as 20 25%. Um, but it's a little bit different with the coronavirus. I think that we're going to have more luck trying to make uh, estimates in terms of what antigens may circulate. This doesn't, this shouldn't continue to mutate at the same rate that it's been evolving. And also we've seen that the um, the ancestral strain, the original vaccine, is providing pretty high degrees of baseline immunity against multiple different variants. We're now five or six variants in with respect to this virus. It's undergone a lot of mutation. And the original vaccine is still providing meaningful protection to patients. Talking about variants, uh, there was a new variant discovered uh, and reported about recently over the past maybe 48 hours in France. Uh, the uh, WHO seems to be downplaying it. I'm curious what your take on it is. Yeah, this was actually first reported on about two, a week ago. It was, there was a preprint uh, on it, a, a cluster that was found in France from some people who had come in um, from a country in Africa. Uh, look, it has some mutations that are concerning, but they're mutations that we've seen before, uh, the 484K mutation, that haven't really taken off in certain strains. And so it's not really clear that this is a more fit strain. Uh, it may be able to partially evade immunity given the complement of mutations that it has, but so far it appears to be an isolated cluster. And there's been plenty of instances where we've had these local outbreaks of novel strains 
probably owing to founder's effect and the fact that you had a strain that got into a specific market and had a couple of super spreading events, but it never really took off. So we, we remember that New York strain that was spreading in the Bronx. We remember the L.A. strain that was spreading in Los Angeles last winter. Neither really took off, even though they had concerning mutations in them. So it, a, a mutation has to be able to evade immunity, but it also has to be able to spread and propagate very easily. And not every mutation is. And then finally, Scott, uh, a number of businesses uh, here in New York City and, uh, and around the tri-state area have effectively uh, told workers not to come into the office uh, through uh, Martin Luther King Day or the end of January. We had the mayor of New York City uh, on the program yesterday. He said he needs he, he wants everybody to come back to the office. He says, come back to the office and mask. Time to get back to work. COVID is here. We have to learn to live with it in a smart way uh, because it is even uh, dangerous to keep our economy closed. And I say, let's start out with a three-day week to let people see the how safe it is to come back to work. Then we cycle back into a five-day week. We can do this within a three-week period. Uh, given the prevalence, what would you be recommending CEOs tell their employees? Look, I think companies that have had their employees back at work and have put in place measures to protect them can continue to do that. I think it's probably a little difficult to make the decision de novo uh, to bring people back to work in the setting of the peak of this epidemic. If you look at the data, it does appear that New York has peaked. D.C., Puerto Rico, uh, Maryland, Florida, Delaware, all appear to be turning the corner on their epidemic curve. Uh, But the Northeast is very dense right now. If you look at counties where you have more than uh, 400 cases per 100,000 people, most of them are in New York or New Jersey, Nassau County, um, New York City, obviously Essex County, Union County, uh, Passaic County. The only other counties are two counties in Colorado and Miami-Dade. So right now the Northeast is in the the thick of the worst part of this epidemic. I think as we get into next week, it's going to become quite obvious that the epidemic is starting to come down. Now, that doesn't take pressure off the hospitals. They're going to continue to see admissions. And that is the challenge here in the Northeast, in New York City in particular, is that the hospitals are really pressed. We got to run, but I have to ask, when things peak, it's, you know, to get back to basically mid-December, which is when things, I think, felt a lot better for, for, for most folks, that still would be four or five weeks after the peak, right? It'll happen more quickly. This is going to come down more quickly, but you're still looking at probably two weeks past the peak, maybe three, until you get the prevalence levels where it's really low. Fair enough. Scott, always great to see you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next. We're going to talk about my, my maybe my favorite food. I don't know. Better ingredients, better pizza. More inflation, though. That's right, a pizza party. And why that can be kind of tough to pull off with the CEO of Papa John's. 2021 has absolutely been the toughest operating environment that our company has ever faced, both from supply chain challenges as well as labor shortages and and wage inflation. Plus Tim Cook's 2021 paycheck with all the details that got us thinking about our own schedules. I don't know if all companies will pay you in cash for your vacation days, but uh, that's an interesting one. (laughs) This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew. A huge payday for Apple CEO Tim Cook, a new SEC filing showing that Cook received just shy of $100 million in compensation last year. That includes a $3 million salary, $82 million in stock awards, and $23,000 for exchanging some of his vacation time for cash. And if you're an Apple shareholder, you might say Cook's pay package was well worth it. Shares were up close to 34% last year as the company reported $365 billion in revenue. That's a billion dollars a day. I don't know if all companies will pay you in cash for your vacation days, but uh, that's, that's an interesting one. <laughs> That'd be worth a payout. It also depends what the scale is, right? For, you know, a day of, a day of Tim, Tim Cook's worth of vacation might actually be much higher. Anyway, Becky, you want to sell some vacation days? Heck yes. You buy? I'll sell them. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm the buyer. No, I wonder. I don't know how that works. I haven't. I have <laughs> well, it depends on the price. To... Although I would say there there are times when you just need a break so much, there's no amount of money that's going to keep you here. You got to spend a little that's time with the family too. and rejuvenate too. And there's something to be said for that. Um, much more important than money. Omicron hitting businesses hard, contributing to nationwide labor shortages, particularly when it comes to the food industry. So how will that, coupled with rising cost, affect restaurants in 2022? Joining us to talk about it is Rob Lynch. He's the CEO of Papa John's. The company, by the way, is also announcing the biggest deal in its history this morning. And that's uh, some pretty significant news. We're going to get to that in just a moment, Rob. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me back So before we talk about this new deal with your franchises that you're doing, let's talk a little bit about what's happening just on the overall labor market. It is Jobs Friday today, so a lot of people wondering, um, how difficult is it to find workers at this point, and and what do you have to pay them to get them to show up? So 2021 has absolutely been the toughest operating environment that our company has ever faced, both from supply chain challenges as well as labor shortages and, and wage inflation. But our teams have been amazing at persevering through all these challenges as they have at persevering through the pandemic. You know, Papa John's has been open every day since the, the start of the pandemic, and we've figured out how to operate in a, in a new normal. And so, you know, the last couple months have been, um, you know, more challenging. Omicron has obviously posed some challenges to the operating environment. Um, the, the contagiousness of, of that variant has definitely put a lot more of our team members into quarantine. So a lot of our other team members have had to step up and they've done an amazing job. Our franchisees have been great leaders throughout this these challenging times and, and that's what's allowed us to outperform the marketplace. Are there geographic areas where it's more significant of a problem than others? Not really. I mean, it, Omicron, it, it's, it's, you know, started out obviously on the coasts, um, similar to the, the original variant, but we're seeing it everywhere. It's affecting all of our restaurants. We operate in every market. In the United States, 51 uh, countries across across the globe, and, and we're seeing Omicron have an impact on our labor pool uh, everywhere. 
Rob, uh, one of your competitors, Little Caesars, just announced this week that they're raising their prices. Honestly, it was news to me that they still had pizza for $5. That, that's been going on since I was a kid, so I can't believe they kept it at that price for forever. But it's an issue that every restaurant company is facing at this point. Higher input costs, inflation for all of these foods. How do you handle it and how big of a problem has it been? You know, Papa John's has always been about better ingredients, better pizza. We've always taken a premium position in the marketplace. And we've really focused that on that over the last two years, returning to that positioning and making sure that our, our, our advertising and our innovation pipeline was all about a quality positioning. And so we believe that that gives us a unique place in this pizza marketplace. We've never competed for the lowest cost uh, pizzas. We've never gone after um, the super value customer. We're looking for people who, who are willing to spend a little bit more to get a better pizza. And I think that position that's really well in this environment. We, we haven't taken a lot of pricing over the last two years. Uh, we haven't needed mm -hmm. to. Our innovation has allowed our customers to self-select and trade up to our premium innovation. And that's driven a lot of growth for us. So if we should need to take pricing, given the, the current inflationary environment, I think we're well prepared to do so. All right. This is maybe an obvious question, but what's innovation when it comes to pizza? And I mean, because you're talking about some significant uh, price increases that you've had to deal with yourself, whether that's coming from labor or whether that's coming from the food that you price out. How much can you innovate a pizza to make it a premium product that people are willing to pay a lot more for? What's the most expensive thing you have on your on your menu? Well, well, Becky, we obviously have to get you some papadillas into the into the station if you haven't tried them yet. <laughs> some um, papa what? <laughs> papadillas. It's our it's essentially our folded pizza that's our handheld that allows us to target um, single serve occasions and compete for the lunchtime uh, day part. But that's just the like a, you know tip like of the a quesadilla. Iceberg. Yeah, similar, but with pizza. And how much does that cost? I mean, if if Little Caesars is talking like five dollars and fifty five cents for a full pizza, how much can you charge for a papadilla? Well, it depends. If you want the base papadilla, we're talking about $6. If you want the Parmesan crusted papadilla, that's probably going to run you in the $7 range. All right. I see. Uh, so incremental and, and and really innovative. You can charge more for it. No, I was just going to say, and it doesn't just, you know, it's also on our core pizza. We just launched our New York style pizza, which is a new larger pizza with larger slices, thinner crust, which, you know, um, it tailors or caters to you know, the Northeast and different regions that are familiar with that type of pizza. So we're always trying to innovate, bring new ideas to win. Um, and, you know, we've kind of taken all the guardrails off the ideas uh, that, that, that can drive our business. So this new agreement that you're announcing is to push uh, into China, and this is going to incredibly expand your footprint. Let's talk a little bit about that. What, what is the deal? How many stores? This is a huge deal. Uh, from what I understand, it's probably about the second largest development agreement in QSR history. Uh, it's 1,350 new restaurants throughout Southern China. For the last two years, since I took this role, I've talked about not just the white space that we have, which is huge relative to our, to our competitors, but also our underpenetration in markets that we already compete in. So we have about 200 restaurants in China today. Uh, and, and this is gonna grow that footprint dramatically. And it's actually about a 20 to 25% increase in the total number of units that we have in our plan uh, for, for the whole system. So right now we have about 5,500 units. We're adding another 1,350 units with one deal. And in 2021, um, and including this deal in 2021, we've added over 2,000 new units to our, to, the, to our development pipeline. And that's the foundation on which every healthy 
restaurant company is built. Development, new store development, it's a testament to the, the, the unit economics. Franchisees are putting their capital into your system. They believe in the future, not just in the short term, but in the long term. So um, this is a big in key leading indicator of what's to come for our brand. You know, it's certainly something that companies like KFC and Starbucks have done very successfully to push into China in a big way. But we have seen rising tensions between the United States and China. Um, you know, not so sure we like them. They're not so sure we like us. And I guess there's always a question about whether that plays out on American brands that are trying to to serve Chinese customers. What, what do you do to try and protect against that? Well, Becky, we fundamentally believe that everyone likes pizza. Um, you know, our company purpose is that everybody loves pizza. It brings us all together. The world deserves better pizza and we deliver it. That's what we stand for. That's who we are. And so bringing our pizza to countries that that may be challenged in a multitude of ways, we just think that um, it can bring people together and it can it can help consumer customers wherever they may be. Pizza ambassadors. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like the I like the ring of that. Yeah, I like the tone of that. So, I mean, fundamentally, that's that's what we're trying to do. And we've got great partners. Fountain Vest are very well capitalized franchisees in the region. They've shown um, a, a great ability to grow brands and work within the context of of the Chinese government and 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 within the country. And we just couldn't be happier that they want to invest, you know, their resources in our brand. Rob, thank you for joining us today and for teaching me what a papadilla is. Um, good luck, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Becky. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thank you for starting 2022 with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All three will be back reunited after the weekend, like they are every weekday morning at 6 a.m. on CNBC. To get the smartest takes and analysis from them on our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday, and in the meantime, enjoy your weekend. And to my fellow New Yorkers, stay warm. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.